Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the Christian life is a battle against sin. If you've been born again, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are very aware of this battle. Now we believe that Jesus has defeated sin and death, and we rejoice in that and have sung about it here today. By trusting His all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross, we are united with His eternal conquest over sin. That's our hope. That's our song today. We are forgiven because of what Jesus did. Dying in our place, rising from the dead to secure our final glorification in God's presence. This we know, in this we rejoice. And yet, and yet, we battle sin until this day comes. This day of glorification in the presence of the Lord. We battle sin. It is part of our Christian walk. Given this reality, it is vital that we understand the nature of this battle and that we learn to fight it biblically. And indeed, we are always seeking to equip ourselves as believers within uh, the body of Christ to know this battle, understand it, and to fight it well. But I ask you then personally, if I may, how did the battle go this week? How was your battle against sin Even more significantly than that question of how we fared over this last week, more significantly, how do you understand this battle and what strategies are you employing in this fight? If we do not understand the nature of this battle and learn to fight it biblically, we are in trouble. Now some might be tempted to dismiss this theme at the outset and say, well that's pretty negative talk, isn't it? We're in a battle against sin. Can we not be more positive? Can we not be more uh, exuberant in some sense in our walk? But in this fallen world, battling sin demonstrates that we have been liberated from sin's bondage by Christ. This is good news. That we're in the battle is itself good news. Slaves to sin do not fight sin. They submit to it. Only those that Christ has liberated from sin can even discuss fighting sin on a daily basis. When we last considered Galatians 5, and if you'll make your way there, Galatians 5, we were reminded not to abuse our freedom in Christ by yielding to sinful desires. We are set free in Christ from sin, and some might think then, That we are free to live however we choose. That it's not going to be a battle. We're free in Christ and we can live as we wish. But Paul is careful to warn the Galatians here in verse 13 of chapter 5. We considered it a few weeks ago. But for you were called to freedom, brothers, he says. Only, warning, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Contrast, responding in the flesh, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
Now in verses 16 through 26, Paul develops the nature of the believer's fight against sin, how we can make progress in that fight, and indeed even how we can identify progress, how we can know if we are making progress. In chapter 3 and verse 3, he says that we have begun in the Spirit, that is, we have been born again by the Spirit of God. Our new life comes as we are baptized in the Spirit, we are cleansed of our sin, and the Spirit takes up residence within. And Paul is saying that is how you came to Christ the Savior, that is then how you will live the Christian life in relationship to the Spirit of God. So we've already, he's already introduced this theme a number of times in the book. But in verses 16 through 18, he exhorts us to fight desires for sin by walking in the Spirit. Now practically, we'll have to work that out a bit, but we need to know this truth. We are to fight sin and fight desires for sin by walking in the Spirit. Notice verse 16. But I say, and there is some contrast here to verse 15, they were biting and devouring one another. There was tension and sin among them. But I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Galatians were tempted to walk by the dictates of the Mosaic law. That is to live in constant response to the law's demands. To listen to what it said about observing days. To listen to what it said about circumcision. To respond to its various dictates. But we are to walk by the Spirit of God. To live in constant response to God's will and to His presence. What does that mean? You remember when Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to minister in his absence to his people. I will send the Spirit of God. This theme is developed in John 14 through 16. The Spirit's central mission is to supply the presence of of Christ to his people. To mediate that presence of Jesus to his people. And it's not that we feel Jesus and we don't see Jesus in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But there is a sense of his presence walking with us that in some sense is equivalent to what the disciples experience. Now it's different, but there is a true presence of Christ mediated by the Spirit of God. These are things we need to trust in faith and come to discern in our walk with the Lord. But we're learning here to think about the battle with sin as an active response to the presence of the risen Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said, Christ lives in me. Again, I don't feel Him necessarily. I can't see Him but in this revelation, it is, we, are, we are called to understand that Christ lives in the believer. There is the presence of Christ that goes with us in this world. I know that by faith, and I begin to trust that in my walk with the Lord. 
remaining aware of Jesus and consciously responding to his desires by faith is the means by which we are to fight sin. But when I respond to the indwelling Christ, I do not gratify the desires of the flesh. The two go against one another. Responding to the presence of Christ cancels out submission to the desires of the flesh. It fights it. It keeps me from fulfilling those desires. Frankly, I I may be wrong, but I, I really believe for a lot of Christians, they just don't think about the fight with sin this way. It's right here in front of us, but we fill in other ideas. We work at it a different direction. How many of us consciously think, I fight sin by being aware of and responding to the presence of Jesus in my heart? I'm instructed here. It's encouraging to learn this and to, to recognize this, that this is about a relationship. And it's always going to be about a relationship because we have come to know God through His Spirit. The reason walking by the Spirit overcomes sin is this, verse 17. Here's why that's the case. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these oppose each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul's meaning, particularly this last phrase, is debated. But I think he's simply saying that the Spirit wants what the flesh and what the flesh wants are in conflict. John Eady, an excellent expositor, has said it this way. He lived in an era before ours, so prepare for yees. But... He said, the Spirit wrestles against your doing the things which ye would on the impulse of the flesh. And the flesh struggles against doing the things which ye would on the impulse of the Spirit. said very simply, there is an impulse, an influence, a desire that is there, and they are at odds. This means that victory over sin in our daily lives is not one By law-keeping. Now, we have to be cautious because I think there are certainly a right use of various disciplines in our life. I may say, I'm not going there again. I'm not going to talk to this person again. I'm not going to be in this place again. It's not to say that's evil. But that's not how we overcome sin ultimately. Overcoming sin, if we can grab this basic point, Overcoming sin is about a relationship. It's about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence in my life, that's the nature of the battle. Desires of the flesh drawing us away to unfaithfulness. And the presence of Christ and relating to Him such that we choose what He desires as we walk with Him. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. Now that, is, that does not make any sense stopping right here, coming into the passage here. But in, in the context of the book of Galatians, it does make sense to us. The law exposes the desires of the flesh and it condemns them as sin. The law says, do not commit adultery. 
It says, do not envy. But the law is incapable of effecting the new desires in our hearts that will keep us from such sin. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being under the law, we are exposed as sinners, as one, ones under sin's dominion and powerless to live righteously. We know that the law is good. We know that what God has said to us is right, but we find ourselves weak and sinful. And so it is not by simply keeping law that we will live righteously. So Paul presses us to conduct our lives in an entirely different way. To rely not on the demands of the law, but to rely on the influence of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling Spirit. It is summarized by James Dunn, whose approach to the book of Galatians I do not take, uh, but he, I think, has a, has a great statement here, uh, very helpful to us. By speaking instead of a walk by the Spirit... Paul is deliberately posing an alternative understanding of how the people of God should conduct themselves, not by constant reference to laws and statutes, but by constant reference, the verb is present continuous action, to the Spirit, constant reference to the Spirit. And not to the Spirit as norm, but to the Spirit as resource. We don't use the Spirit as an alternative law, but the Spirit in relationship as a resource. Profound statement. I've shared this illustration twice and was working to come up with a different one, but was encouraged to go ahead with the old one because it's helpful and workable. So we've, we've mentioned this a few times in uh, through the years, but I, 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 it's helpful for me to just illustrate what is Paul saying, how does this look, how might we illustrate this. Particularly, let's say, for men, let's imagine that you have been invited by friends in Southern California to a summer vacation. They own a private stretch of beach. A beautiful home, and you're going to come for a week and live in this paradise with them. There's one catch, writes your godly friend in this letter to you of invitation, and that is that you have to walk along this beach for several miles, and it's going to be crowded. And there's going to be a lot of people there that don't have a lot of clothing on, and there's going to be a lot of beautiful bodies that you're going to have to walk past. It's a tempting situation. When you get on the other side to our place, the beach is open, all is fine, but you're going to have a battle with sin on this walk. So having written you this letter, you're thinking, you know, I wasn't really thinking about that, but I am now. And you come onto the beach, and and enclosed in the letter, he gives you this little wristband that says, do not lust on it. And keep looking at that wristband as you walk and don't let your eyes wander and don't let your mind go where you know God does not want it to go. So you get to the beach and you're on the beach and you're thinking about this wristband and what it's saying and you continue to be drawn away to do exactly what the band says not to do. 
the band stands in this illustration in a sense for the law. The law says do not lust. We are to find sexual pleasure only with our mate. That's God's will. But this law, this, this message continues to remind me of how weak I am and how bent I am in some ways against what the law says. But, so I take this trip on my own and it's a real struggle. But imagine, changing the analogy a bit, that your friend says, it will be tough, it will be a challenge, you can wear the band, but I want you to know this, I'm going to meet you at the front. And we're going to walk together. And we're going to seek to honor the Lord on this walk, and we're going to talk together as friends as we go along the beach. Applying to the women... And there can be crossover, you're free to draw the illustration as you wish, but uh, the, the wife of these friends sends a letter to, uh, this, to, to you as a woman and says, we want you to come on this vacation. But I've learned some things about our neighbors. And I, I don't know how to break this to you exactly, but there's a really, really beautiful place that sits kind of prominently on the beach. And that's that guy that you used to date in high school. That's his house. And you remember that girl that made, said all those lies about you and deceived him? Well, she's, she's kind of his wife now. And that's their home. And you're going to see it, and you may even see them out there, and don't be bitter, don't be angry, and don't be jealous. And I've sent you a band in the envelope that says, don't be bitter, don't be jealous, don't get angry. How does she start off on this journey along the beach? It's like that's all she can think about. That could be mine. He could be mine. If this woman hadn't lied about me. But again, imagine that the friend meets her as she gets out of the car and says, let's talk as we go by this place. Let's talk about the grace of God. Let's talk about the blessings of the Lord. Let's talk about the providence of God and what He intends for our good that we don't always understand. Doesn't the walk go a lot more easily? Christian, the Holy Spirit is that friend. The law is a written word, and it so often reminds us of our weaknesses, but the Spirit of God is that friend in your life. He mediates the presence of Christ with you so that as we face the temptations of this world, we have a friend to talk to. We have one whose influence is upon us, and we are led and encouraged to do what is right as we sense His presence and know His will and seek to honor this friend that we walk with. We must learn then to walk in faith, believing that Jesus' presence is with us and actively responding to His influence as if we are walking past temptations with a friend. For in real sense we are. Now, I don't know what the temptation is that is most significant in your life. That conglomeration of temptations that are all bound up and keep you from walking with the Lord. But think on this. 
Meditate on this. Know that in practicing the presence of Christ with us, discerning His will, and knowing that as a friend He is walking with you through that dark valley, there is hope. And there is conquest over sin in our life. To continue equipping us for this battle, Paul provides some examples of what the Spirit and the flesh want. We see this battle, we see the relationship with Christ is the answer, not merely submission to the law. But what does it look like? Verse 19, he begins with some examples. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Not an exhaustive list. But if we consider this graphic, we are in the flesh. That is, in Adam. And in Adam, there is a way that we respond to the desires of the flesh. We yield to them. We desire them. This is who we are. And uh, these Vices are an evidence of being in Adam or in the flesh, responding as the flesh would desire. We're not going to take time to spend much effort here on identifying each of these vices, but this is what he means. When we yield to the desires of the flesh, sexual immorality. Any sexually immoral thought or act not concentrated on one's husband or wife is the meaning impurity, it's immorality of any sort, but often of the defilement of sexual sin. And sensuality, it speaks of unrestrained, unbridled, reckless living with no respect for others and no concern for being respectable. A wild party is perhaps the vision of this. Idolatry, anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Sorcery, the practice of magic arts. Flirtation with the powers of darkness. Enmity is hatred or hostility toward others. Strife is contentious quarreling and bickering. We pick at people with our words. Jealousy, resenting the honor or success of another person. Wishing that was me. Angry that it's him or her. Fits of anger. This is venting our frustrations and disappointments, often by attacking others, exploding in anger. That's what the flesh wants. Rivalries. A contentious, selfish spirit that competes with others in an unloving way. And dissensions and divisions, virtually synonymous words, choosing sides against others, forming a team, forming a clique, Seeing things together and speaking ill of those who don't see it the way we do. Envy. A spirit that recoils at the legitimate success of others. Drunkenness. Choosing a condition which fuels fleshly desires and escapes responsibility. Orgies. The Greek word is probably not the best translation. It has a very sexual sense in our uh, English understanding of orgies. It's probably a broader word than that, but it just speaks of wild partying and carousing and revelry. Letting loose, not worrying about what people think. 
It's things like these that demonstrate, that illustrate the desires of the flesh. Yeah, we get what they are. We understand. It's not an exhaustive list, for it is things like these. We could add many to it. But these desires are in battle, are in conflict with what we find later in the text. But first of all, there is a warning here. In verse 21, at the end of the verse, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a warning. Those who do such things, both the tense and the verb, both the tense of the verb and the meaning of the noun point to a characteristic practice. So it's not saying that anyone who has ever done one of these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There'd be no hope for any of us. But it is this. Those whose lives are characterized by these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is who you are, this list that you see on this this graphic before us, if this is who you are, if this is the stuff of your life, if this characterizes who you are, the Bible says you're not going to heaven. You say, well, I've, I've, I've... prayed a prayer. I've, I've trusted Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. The Bible says you're not going to heaven. But, but it says you're not going to heaven. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if this is the characteristics of your life. That's not because you earn heaven with your good works. That would be a wrong conclusion. But it's also a wrong conclusion to say, I know what Jesus did to save sinners. I'm good. I can live however I want to live. And I can live characteristically fulfilling the desires of the flesh. If that's what I think, I'm not going to heaven. It's an evidence that I've not been saved by Christ. And so it is not, I mean, we will be judged ultimately in some significant sense by our actions, by our deeds. Read the Bible. This is what it says. That doesn't mean that we will be saved by our goodness. We cannot do that. Only Christ can save us. But when Christ does save someone, they are transferred from in Adam to a new identity by the washing of the Spirit to be in Christ. And now in Christ, battling those desires of the flesh, there are the characteristic fruit of the Spirit. By the way, I I think it's fine to say fruits of the Spirit. Some people really argue that point. It's got to be singular. It It has to be just one singular idea. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I've been petrified by adding the S to the end of fruits for a long time of my life. And I realize, you know, it's, it, there, it, fruits of the flesh are also described as well as fruits of the Spirit. I don't think that's the big point. The big point here are the virtues that the Spirit produces. So this is the fruit that comes when we have been washed by the Spirit of God and the presence of Christ is in our lives. Now, if that first blue circle is convicting. This green circle is equally convicting in a different way. But the fruit of the Spirit here taken together, 
that is the qualities that mark the influence of the Spirit in one's life, are love. 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly in context, that is an emphasis here. But we love God, we love others. There is joy. There is peace. Contextually, particularly in relationship to other believers. Not dissensions and factions and bickering and arguing and jealousy, but peace and love. And patience speaks of steadfast endurance or staying power. It does not give up on people or trials. And kindness often has the sense of generosity and goodness, very similar to kindness. Just how we treat people. Faithfulness, that is reliability in this context. Dependability in relationship to others and especially in relationship to God. One that can be trusted to serve Him and be faithful to Him. Gentleness. One who is never angry at the wrong time and always angry at the right time. One who does not run over people. Self-control. When the Spirit of God is in my life, there is a control over my tongue. I have the capacity to not say things I'm thinking. And I have through Him the capacity to say things that are right that I really don't feel like saying. When the Spirit of God gives us self-control, His, His presence is evidenced in our lives, we, it, it, it affects how we deal with food. It affects how we deal with hobbies, with money, with our bodies. We have self-control. Control. Now this too, I think, is not a comprehensive list. I think we can draw that from what he said about the uh, vice list that is here. So with the virtues, I don't think we're looking at a, a comprehensive list. This is not an exhaustive blueprint for the Christian life. It's almost funny to watch some Christians take these nine ideas and think that they're going to get them all under control. And, 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 and I've, I've got these under control. I've got the Christian life by the tail. <laughs> no. Uh, first, that's just foolish to think that way, but it's probably in God's mind way more than nine. But against such things, there's no law. Now, that's a hard statement. It's hard to know what he means, but the law has maybe it's, the law is nothing to say against these qualities, and it offers no restrictions or guidelines concerning them. You're free to pursue it. In fact, these are characteristics of life in the Spirit, and the law has no strength to produce this fruit in our lives. Kind of back to the illustration of the wristband. The wristband's not going to save me from anything. It tells me the truth. It's a right word. It's good counsel, but it doesn't change me. So there's no law where these things are, where these things pertain. F.F. Bruce, quoting another author, put it this way, well, a vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. I think that may catch the idea. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. We see here the danger of legalism. 
and the danger that he's been talking about in this book for some time. But legalism appeals to the law and it seeks as Christians, as genuine believers, it seeks to grow in sanctification by appeal to rules. There's one thing that's always true about those rules. They're always keepable by anybody with a measure of discipline. The list of religious deeds are always deeds that one can keep in the power of the flesh. You can't keep this list in the power of the flesh. You can't do it. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. There's too many broken people in this world <laughs> to be able to do that in my own strength, right? There's too many, too many people that mess with us, too many problems that come, too many trials in this frustrating, sinful world. I need the presence of God to live like that. I cannot do that in my own strength. And only the indwelling Christ can bring this about in my life. So there's, there's a sense in which there's nothing I can do. But there is another sense in which there is a response that's very vital. But only God can accomplish this. There's no law against these things. Verse 24, he continues, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's where the battle is found. It's found in what Jesus Christ has done. Now, it says here that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But let's remember chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. I'm not the one that's crucified. And there's no statement that Paul ever makes that puts it in terms of I alone, apart from God, am the one who's crucified. But I am crucified with Christ in His crucifixion. So here the stress falls on our decision to identify with Christ crucified. But of course it is He who is crucified. He who has defeated sin and we die with Him. Our old man is crucified and we become a new person in Christ. The flesh with its passions and desires is not obliterated in, in some complete sense yet. But sin's power is broken. This world continues to appeal to our flesh but only like a voice coming over a wall. So if you can watch the screen for a moment with some animation here. How do we view this? You see the little silhouette there. That's me at birth. That's who we are at birth. We are born in Adam. And we are responsive to the desires of the flesh. In fact, not only are we responsive to those desires, we are enslaved to them. We can't really do anything else. Now, we can imitate the circle on the right. We can fake it. But given the right opportunities, the truth will come out. We are in the flesh. We are in Adam. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are transferred into this new realm. We are now not in Adam in the sense that we were in sin, but now we are in Christ. <clears throat> There is a new identity. There is a new relationship with God. There is a new being. In fact, Jesus calls this the new birth. We are born again. We are transferred into the other realm. Now, 
how do we, some people would look at it this way. We are transferred into the new realm, but now I have two natures that are competing. A fleshly nature and a spiritual nature, and these two natures are are fighting. I, I think it is best for us to remember that there's only one who had two natures, and that was Jesus. I think the better understanding... Oh, I'm going to have too many people on here that I can't control. But there you go. There's a better understanding. Is um, This is who I am. But that silhouette is a body. It's still unglorified. And in this world, the voices, the arrow coming out of that blue realm... I can still hear it. I can still desire it. I can still be influenced by it. That blue realm, that was my master. That was Satan. That was sin. That was his old desires. I am not yet glorified. I've not yet ultimately been delivered from the full influence of that flesh, but that's not who I am. I am now in a new relationship with Christ in Him. And so, Paul continues and says essentially what he's already said in verses 16 through 18. In 16 through 18, I've just summarized it as we must fight sinful desires by walking in the Spirit. Now he said, here's what the desires of the flesh look like, here's what the desires of the Spirit look like. If we would make this a second major point, it would be beginning at... um, Verse 25, verses 25 and 26, we must grow in sanctification by keeping in step with the Spirit. He's saying essentially the same thing, summarizing what he's already said, but let's take it to heart. We are sanctified, we grow in Christ by keeping in step with the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? If we live by the Spirit, I've been washed clean. I've been baptized in the Spirit. I've trusted Christ as Savior, and I'm now in that new realm. I'm now in Christ. If we have started the new life that way, by being baptized in the Spirit, cleansed and made new, born again, then, walking in this Christian life, we should keep in step with the Spirit. Not ignore the Spirit of God. Not think that the presence of Christ is is unimportant but rather to walk in line. It's a militaristic word, to keep in line, to keep in rank, to keep walking. If you'd use my analogy, to stand next to Jesus along the beach and walk with Him to the end. Let's keep walking in the Spirit, walking in the presence of Christ, mediated by His Spirit. Verse 26, he becomes very practical and he'll do so uh, to follow let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It kind of comes back, here's the desires of the flesh, and this is what it's looking like. You're in danger, verse 15, of devouring one another with your words because of your self-centeredness. You're conceited. You think too much of yourselves. You're provoking one another to sin. You're envying one another. There's this strife that's there. And as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, as we look at this strife among these professing believers, we admit this battle's going to keep going on, isn't it? I look at the fruit of the Spirit and I say, and I must ask, does that look like me? 
Is that what my life looks like? There's an ongoing battle. We're not there as we should be. But we recognize from this passage that the Christian life is a grueling, unending battle against sin. The flesh and the spirit will always be in conflict. To walk in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit such that we learn to live in the presence of Christ is the key. This is how we are to fight sin. Now, I don't mean to say that this is a full orb consideration of the fighting of sin in the Christian's life. But it is a very central and essential truth to know. By faith, Christ is in my life. His presence is with me, mediated through the Spirit that He has sent as He reigns from heaven above. I know this truth. I sense it to be true by His grace, but I come to put into practice and trust by faith in this presence. And I walk with Jesus through life, facing every temptation along the way. It's a relationship with Him. Now there's so much we cannot say about the Spirit's actual work in this process. But coming back to those words, it is resource. It is resource. It is relationship. It is presence that is essential. Many Christians, I believe, get very far off the track when they think of the Spirit's presence merely as promptings. The Spirit of God told me to do this. The Spirit of God indicated I should do this. I felt I've gotten this feeling and this vibe from the Spirit and, and, and I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do that. As if the Spirit of God is some sort of mystical map and you just open it up and say, I want to go here. How do I get there, Spirit? Let me know. This is not the point. The fruit of the Spirit is not knowing God's will for your life perfectly in every event and circumstance the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience it's changed character so there's many christians that want to manipulate the spirit as some sort of celestial gps system i don't ever have to think again because the spirit told me to take that job the spirit told me to marry that person the spirit told me not to pay that bill and really the spirit that's talking has a small s and is inside of you, and it's been there from the beginning. This is not what the Spirit of God does. It doesn't change lights from red to green just when we want, because we prayed it. But He does give us, mediating to us, the presence of Christ, and that influence changes our character. So that we evidence the godliness and the wisdom and the courage of Christ in the midst of a fallen and tempting world. So the key is to put into effect who we truly are in Christ. <clears throat> and to be responsive that way. And let me say again, as I said a bit earlier, this is good, good news. The fact that you're in the battle is good news. Take heart. Are you discouraged? Are you bitter? Are you frustrated? Are you saying, I can't win over lust? I, I, are, you, are you greedy and selfish and you know it? Take heart if you're fighting. Because if you're fighting, it means you're not getting swept down the river. We can picture the life, uh, life in this world like we're walking downstream and there's a flow of water behind and it's really strong and it leads us along and we're going exactly the way we want to go as we look upstream. I'd never want to walk against that stream. 
And so we just go down the stream with the stream. Every once in a while, it takes our feet out from under us, and we bang our head on a rock, and we get all beat up, but we get back up, and at least I'm not walking upstream. And we get to the end of our lives, and suddenly there's a realization this stream is leading over a massive waterfall, and we are going to be crushed at the bottom in judgment We've been going along with everyone else. We've been going with the flow. We've been doing the, fulfilling the desires of our heart. And yes, we get beat up a lot, but there's no, there's no answer. Now this, and we look to the side as we go over the falls with fear and judgment to come. But the good news in this whole stream is that Jesus puts his hand on his people And he says, let's turn around. Repent of your desires. Repent of this flow that goes the direction that we want to go. And I want you to walk the other direction upstream. It's hard. That water is flowing hard and it hurts. And sometimes we get our feet knocked out from under us and bang our head on rocks. and We have to get back up and we got to keep walking up the stream. But the good news is Jesus goes with us. And every advance up that stream, we begin to look back on our life and we say, you know what? It's getting a little less powerful. As we get further and further up into the country, the flow is not quite so hard. And I'm beginning to see more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And that rush and that torrent of flow begins to soften. And the higher up we move, as we get closer to glory, by God's grace, He continues to sanctify and change us such that the fight against sin, it's not that it's ever gone. But by His grace, we begin to grow in the likeness of Christ to win those battles, and to keep making that progress toward home. Now that analogy can fail on many levels. It might look like self-effort. It's not. Let's remember, it's walking with Christ. It's His presence in our life fighting the desires of the flesh and sin so that we, in, in an inching way, little by little, make progress to grow in the faith. So if you're walking upstream and you go, the water's barreling at me, this is not fun, I don't like this, could you just remember, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, He's right there with you. He'll give you the strength, He'll give you the stability, and thank God you're fighting sin. There's no fight when you're a slave of sin. But having been delivered from it, the fight evidences that Christ our Master has rescued us. If you do not know Him, I would just say to you, just in this weak and ineffectual in some ways analogy, turn around. You're going with the desires of your heart. You're going with the sinful desires that are natural to you. What you don't understand is that you're being brought to destruction. Jesus warns us of this and he says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. It won't be a rest where you sit on a chair on the side, but it will be a rest of journeying upriver against the flow of the desires of the flesh in the desire of the Spirit until we meet him in his city at the end. Let's pray.
Lord, we look forward in our smaller groups to work through some of the implications of this passage, and I pray that throughout this day, each one of us would be striving to come to terms with the counsel that we find in your word and confessing how often we fight sin in the flesh. We fight sin by law. We fight sin by legalistic means. We don't fight it by relationship with you. I pray, God, that there be a a tenderness of heart that comes upon us, a willingness to submit to your presence and your call upon our life, and a knowledge that our identity is bound up in Christ. We're in him. We don't have our own self ruling anymore. Though in the flesh, in body, though yet unglorified, though we can still hear the solicitations to the flesh, we turn with thanksgiving to the truth that we are in Christ, that His life is in us, and I pray that we would fight sin hard together. For those that are simply being drawn down and dragged away downstream, I pray that they'd get their foothold through Christ's power and stabilizing strength that they would trust Jesus as the one who was crucified in their place and trust Jesus as the risen Savior, and that they'd come to life today, that they'd start to battle sin rather than to be enslaved to it. May you bring that about in our midst for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.